From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. While Europe was in the Dark Ages, scientific discovery was blooming in the Islamic world. The latest in science was in Damascus, in Cairo, and those scientists in Europe knew about it. Now, centuries after being eclipsed by the West, countries like Jordan, Qatar, and Turkey are making new investments in space exploration. This is the first accelerator in the Middle East. But even the wealthiest, most advanced Muslim countries face challenges in developing their space programs. They have to build these international collaborations. However, they also have to make sure that young talent in their own countries is being developed. Islam and the Cosmos, next on America Abroad. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. I'm Madeline Brand. With 7.5 million visitors every year, Washington's National Air and Space Museum is the most visited museum in the country. Walking in, you are immediately confronted by what the staff there calls the biggies. We have Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis, we have a lunar lander, we have the Bell X-1, we have an X-15. These are the icons of the air and space age. David Dvorkin is the museum's senior curator for the history of astronomy. He walks under the various aircraft suspended from the ceiling and past part of Skylab, the original space station. It looks like a tin can about 50 feet high. And he heads into a gallery marked Explore the Universe. And the theme here of Explore the Universe is that as we have acquired new tools of perception, and that's both visual perception or sensory perception and conceptual perception, we've found that the universe isn't what we thought it was. There's the backup mirror for the Hubble Space Telescope. That's a big draw for people here. But nearby, and far less flashy, is a display case holding centuries-old scientific instruments. The absolutely quintessential instruments over the last several thousand years for observing the sky were called astrolabes. And these are sighting devices, very, very simple in concept, but very sophisticated in operation. There are four metallic astrolabes. The oldest one is an Islamic astrolabe dating back to the year 1090. It's about four inches in diameter, and it's made of a bronze material. It's engraved with intricate curly cues and precise mathematical markings, circles, arrows, curved grids. To make observations with this astrolabe, you would actually hold it by the ring, by your finger, or through a string or something, and that determines the vertical. Uh, they're a combination of a observing device, like you can calculate uh, what the heights of objects are. You can determine uh, your time of night or time of day. The Greeks invented astrolabes, but Muslim scientists greatly improved them. What is generally accepted in history is that the Hellenistic astrolabes were pretty basic pointing devices and calculating devices, but then they became much more versatile and uh, sophisticated when the Islamic world adopted them. And this fulfilled a very important role in the ancient world, and that is to be able to tell time, place, and uh, know something about yourself, your cosmology, because in the Islamic world especially, these were also used to cast horoscopes. Dvorkin says the Islamic astrolabe is not only an important scientific artifact, but it's also an important cultural and religious one. 
These are practical devices. They're also statements. The Islamic ones had inscriptions from the Quran, and they were sort of the thing that you would use to orient yourself, both physically and psychically. So they played a social role, and the astrolabe itself does a very good job of telling you the sophistication of the society that used it. Today on America Abroad, we'll look back at the period when this astrolabe was perfected. It's an era known as the Golden Age of Islam. We'll hear about how it started, how it ended, and why the European Renaissance might not have happened without it. We'll look at how some Muslim countries are now trying to become world leaders in astronomy and space science again. But there are challenges. Can Jordan entice enough scientists from a politically unstable Middle East to come and use its particle accelerator? And will Turkey's desire to be a world leader in astronomy be thwarted by the government's censorship of modern scientific theory? Finally, we'll discuss the United Arab Emirates' plan to build and sustain its own space program. But first, back to that astrolabe. Why were Muslims so driven to perfect this device? The answer has everything to do with Islam, says George Saliba. He's a professor emeritus at Columbia University and an expert on the history of Arabic and Islamic science. He says, before Islam developed, the Arabian Peninsula knew only rudimentary science. Good old um, grandmother's recipes for curing cold, for doing these kinds of things. They knew a lot more about the constellations and the stars up in the heavens because where Islam was born, where they were blessed in an environment that at the time was not polluted. So you could see the skies and you could see all sorts of nice stars up there and constellations. And of course, like all cultures, they made up stories. It was more astrology than astronomy, but that was about to change. In the 7th century, Islam was born and it began to spread throughout the Arabic-speaking world. Just like all religions, at the very beginning, they formulate specific laws and specific procedures uh, how to observe the religion. And they don't think them usually all the way to the very extreme. Those laws may have seemed simple at first, but for Muslims who wanted to observe them strictly, the laws raised some pretty complicated questions. For example, one of the duties of every Muslim is to pray five times a day. And four of those five times are easy to recognize. There's one at dawn, one at noon, two after sunset. But then there's a tricky one in the middle of the afternoon. And it's hard to tell exactly when you need to pray. If you miss the window, the prayer isn't valid. And that is problematic because it's supposed to happen after the noon prayer, but before the evening prayer. The early Muslims, when they were still in Mecca, they developed a rule of thumb that afternoon prayer is supposed to begin when your shadow is equal to your height. The end of that allotted time is when your shadow is equal to twice your height. One would think that this is a simple, straightforward, and it should work very well. It worked, actually, when you are still in Mecca, below the latitude of 22 degrees. But by the time you get to Damascus, when it is about 33, 34 degrees, there will be days in the winter time when your shadow will never be equal to your height. It will always be 
much, much longer than you, especially because the sun is low around the winter solstice, uh, there will be at least 15 to 20 days that you never get that condition to be met. So does that mean you skip the prayer? It was a big problem. Praying five times a day is one of the most important religious duties in Islam. As the faith spread throughout the Middle East and beyond, more of these questions of how to strictly follow Islamic law popped up. Questions like, which way is Mecca? And how to deal with time differences. All of those questions were immediately faced, and they had to be answered because you have to do it every single day. You have to pray. So they looked for answers anywhere they could find them, from the ancient Greek astronomer Ptolemy to the equations developed by Persian and Indian astronomers. Wherever there was a solution that helped them solve these problems, they picked it up. And wherever they couldn't find solutions, they had to invent a new solution. But they didn't stop at solving these religious problems. They went further. Once you solve that problem, you have this tool in your hand you can deploy it somewhere else. You can, in other words, it is just like you go to the store to buy a hammer to nail a nail for your pictures. But once you finish, you still have the hammer. You can do with the hammer all sorts of things. So once the tools were available, they began to toy around with those tools and to actually begin to explore the extent of those tools. That's where the innovation comes in. And it's where the astrolabe comes in. When Muslims pray, they're required to face the city of Mecca. So they had to find a way to determine the precise direction of Mecca from anywhere in the world. They found the solution in an ancient Greek invention that was used for navigation. Muslim astronomers first adopted the astrolabe in the 8th century. By the 10th century, they had found hundreds of uses for it. And they continued tinkering and improving the device over the next few centuries during a period known as the Golden Age of Islam. This era was actually born out of war and turmoil, with heretical Christian scholars fleeing from the Byzantine Empire into Mesopotamia. Assad Ahmed is an associate professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at UC Berkeley, and he picks up the story from there. So when Islam emerges, and especially with the coming of the Second Dynasty, many of these individuals who have Greek and Arabic and Syriac are patronized by the Muslims. Many of them are also in the administration they patronize, they produce these translations, and then many of them end up taking Muslim scholars as their students. Uh, some of them are philosophers, some of them are astronomers, some of them are mathematicians. Many of them are all of these things. Many of them are polymaths. So it's a very intense period of cross-pollination, interreligious dialogue, cross-disciplinary uh, investigations that takes place during this time. Right. Okay. And then fast forward to 859, the first university built in Fez, Morocco. Tell us about that university and how it was able to attract scholars from really all over. Yeah. So the basic thing that we have to remember with any kind of astronomical and scientific activity is that it was based on royal patronage. This was a much larger social and political project. Mm. And, and what sustained uh, the astronomical and scientific activity in Islam was the commitment of uh, rather important, well-to-do members of the noble class and, and other kinds of patrons, such as caliphs and so on. And was there a tension between the study of astronomy and the study of astrology? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, this is a bit, a bit of a misunderstanding that I think people have. The two sciences stood in a relationship where astronomy was the principal science which provided certain starting points for astrology. Astrology was effectively a political tool. You would use it, for example, to cast horoscopes that would give legitimacy 
to the beginning of the reign of a particular ruler, for example. You would use it to determine the most auspicious time to start the building of a city, for example. But its discoveries and its developments, namely of, of astrology, did not go backwards and affect mathematical astronomy. In other words, there was a flow from the principal science of astronomy down into the derivative science of astrology. Moving on to the Ottoman Empire in the late 16th century, what was the view there on scientific research? Pretty much continuous with the past. Um, another myth that I think we have to overcome, and this is something that I've been stressing in my writings, is that after the so-called golden age, there is no clear sense of decline. In fact, there are uh, probably greater and more sophisticated discoveries that happen. So in the Ottoman Empire, there's a continuation of the tradition. There are observatories that are set up for advancing the cause of astronomy and other kinds of uh, scientific activities that take place. We have a bit of a blind spot, though, after the 16th century. We have reports and some knowledge of the involvement of Hindus and Muslims and even Western astronomers and Western astronomical methods uh, in the case of uh, ast Muslim astronomy in India. But the details are not available to us yet because we're just digging the surface at this point. So how does this knowledge eventually make its way to the West? Right. <clears throat> this is another bit of a blind spot, though we're beginning to be know a little bit more than we did about five years ago. <laughs> we have, uh, for example, in the figure of Nasiruddin Tusi, who is a scholar who dies in the 13th century, 1274 to be precise. So Tusi, for example, was facing an old problem of showing how linear motion can be explained in the heavens in terms of circular motion. Everything had to happen in terms of circular motion. So, for example, he came up with this mathematical model called the Tusi couple, where you place one large circle, uh, a small circle into a large circle, and you set them up in a certain fashion that you're able to produce like a piston, a certain linear motion out of a circular one. This is, for example, a model that was clearly taken up by Copernicus. Even the diagrams that you find in his famous book on astronomy not only are they identical, but they're also labeled identically. So where you have alif in Arabic, you would have alpha in the figure that you find in the book of Copernicus, where you have beta, you have be, and so on and so forth. Now, how did this happen is not entirely clear. There is some, because we know Copernicus didn't read Arabic, and we don't have the textual evidence of how he got this. So one hypothesis which seems to be bearing some fruit is that we have astronomers trained in the Ottoman world, and some of them are of the Jewish faith, who are basically the intermediaries. They're taking this astronomical knowledge from the Ottoman world, written in Arabic, and this knowledge is moving with them to Italy, to Padua, for example. So this is one explanation as to how these models and these discoveries came eventually to Copernicus and then from there expanded and had an influence on the development of Western astronomy. And during this golden age, were scholars of different religions mixing and sharing information and working together? Absolutely, yes. Can you explain then why we here in the West sort of have a, a miscommunication or a level of ignorance about these scientific advancements and discoveries? Part of it is that I think in the post-Enlightenment age, the West needed to reflect on its own trajectory and its own history. The West had this narrative about the Dark Ages in which it was mired, an age of religious fundamentalism, out of which it emerged with the light of reason, forgetting, by the way, that along the way, this kind of a revolution the Enlightenment Revolution had quite a few religious scholars who were involved. This kind of a narrative of self-reflection had to be, it seems to me, to be posited against the narration of another culture. In other words, you sort of set up your own narrative history in relation to the narrative history of another tradition. 
It is in this sense, by the way, that I think that this whole story of the golden age in decline has even emerged. In the case of Islam, the narration is that things happen in the reverse fashion. Muslims and Muslim astronomers certainly made great contributions in a bygone age. Thereafter, they declined, uh, whereas in the West, we uh, progressed in an upward trajectory. It's a kind of a foil. That's Assad Ahmed, Associate Professor of Arabic and Islamic Studies at UC Berkeley. Coming up after the break, the story of how Jordan is taking a cue from the Golden Age and bringing together the region's best minds to spur innovation. We are happy to see scientists far away from politics and enough war. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, Islam and the cosmos. There's a common historical narrative that says that after the Islamic golden age of science, the Muslim world went into decline while Europe progressed. But that's really an oversimplification. The way knowledge is transmitted between cultures can be a messy process, says historian George Saliba. Take the European Renaissance, which began in the 14th century. We begin to hear voices in Europe of Orientalists, meaning of uh, men of science who have studied Arabic and who looked at this early contact between Latin and Arabic material and begin to express a tremendous kind of reserve to say that those early Latin translators, they didn't know what they were doing. Bad translations. So some European scientists learned Arabic so that they could study the most advanced science of the day. At the time, the latest in science was in Damascus. It was in Cairo. It was in the Islamic world. And those scientists in Europe knew about it. And they were picking it up and incorporating it in their own works. Some of them even traveled to the Middle East to study, like the French astronomer and philosopher Guillaume Postel, who lived in the 1500s. He heard there is this language, Arabic, and there is all sorts of science in it. He learned it himself, and we don't know how, but he managed to learn it, and then he traveled to the Middle East, and he picked up material from Damascus, from Constantinople, and we still have those manuscripts at the Bibliothèque Nationale of France in Paris, up till now, marked with his own signature, says Ex Libris Guillaume Postelis. Arabic astronomy books with Postel's Latin annotations filling the margins. Guillaume Postel was studying Arabic specifically to understand the astronomy. And then the next morning, he was delivering lectures at what then called l'Institut Royal, and now is called the Collège de France, the highest institution of learning in France. He was preparing the lectures through the Arabic text, delivering the lecture in Latin. And a few European scientists peppered their published works with Arabic writing. There is a man by the name of Della Porta, John Battista Della Porta, he was a close friend of Galileo because they both of them were members of an, a science academy in the early part of the 17th century. Della Porta was a polymath. He perfected the camera obscura, was a master cryptographer, and he claimed to have invented the telescope, though that last one, it's unlikely. In 1610, he wrote a book on meteorology. That treatise, because he depended so much on the Arabic sources to read it, he gave it to what he calls at the time the professor of Arabic at the Collegio Romano. That's a Jesuit university in Rome. It had an Arabic teacher in residence. Marcos Dobili. 
Dobali was not just a teacher. This man is Murqus Daibel. He used to be from northern Iraq, used to work as a translator at the Vatican for the Pope to answer all the correspondence that he gets from the churches of the East. And in his spare time, he would teach Arabic at the Jesuit school. So Delaporta gave him a copy of his manuscript. And he asks this Marcus Dobili to produce some statement in Arabic that really sings the praises of the book so that he can publish it at the very beginning of the book. You know how these days, when you look at the back of the book, there are all sorts of people praising the book and signing it and all of that. He gave this Marcus Dobili the book to actually write something. Marcus produced for him about 16 lines of poetry praising the book and speaking about the subject of the book. The Arabic poem was printed on the very first page of Delaporta's book. And years later, when he published a second edition, he kept the poem in it. Why did he have to ask a professor of Arabic to praise the book for him? And what is the value of having a text in Arabic printed in 1610? All of those people are at the beginning of the 17th century creating modern science for us. And so this Marcus Dobli, Marcus Daibel, begins to be the confidant of Della Porta, who happens to be also a close associate of Galileo, all of them meeting at the Academia del which is the earliest academy in Europe that is specifically devoted to scientific questions. Saliba says the Renaissance wasn't about preserving Greek and Roman scientific traditions. It was about studying the latest science and building on it. And the latest in science was in the Islamic world. And they were picking it up, incorporating it into their Latin sources and bragging about the fact that they know the language, they know Arabic, and here is the decoration of the book of the La Porta with an Arabic poem and all that stuff. Europeans continued to turn to the Middle East to study science. In the 17th century, there's a whole group of astronomers who worked at Oxford, by the way. Two brothers called the Greaves brothers owned Arabic astronomical manuscripts and annotated them, and the manuscripts are still at the Bodleian Library at Oxford up till till today. But by the 18th and 19th centuries, the Muslim Ottoman Empire was losing power as the Europeans were building empires. And as Europe got richer, it spent more money on science. And their scientific advances, from navigational instruments to weapons, helped them expand their empires. Europe took off as a result of that because it had the wealth. The rest of the world began to be subject of exploitation. All of the other non-European world was subjected to colonization and colonized people, subjected people, do not produce science, nor anything else, by the way. They just produced poetry, poetry of chagrin. Scientific advancement in the Islamic world stagnated, but it didn't go away completely. There are still Muslim scientists, but they have a hard time competing with the West. History shows us political turmoil and war can hinder scientific advancement, that's clear. But in Jordan, another idea is being tested. Can science advance peace? Rebecca Collard reports. Less than an hour outside Amman is the Middle East's only major international scientific research center. The Jordanian town of El Salt is home to Sesame. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Rebecca. Nice to meet you. I'm Giorgio Paolucci. I'm scientific director of Sesame. 
SESAMI stands for Synchrotron Light for Experimental Sciences and Applications in the Middle East. So actually, my understanding is that they first, of course, thought of the name in terms of Open Sesame, of course. Sesame stands out among the modest homes that dot the hillsides of El Salt, with its large four-story white stone building and turquoise roof. High fences surround the campus. Inside, the scale is clear. Most of the interior is one large open space, about double the size of a football field, with offices lining the edges. Filling up most of that space is the synchrotron, housed in a circular metal casing. This is the first accelerator in the Middle East, so that is by itself a big accomplishment. The accelerator, or electron synchrotron, allows scientists to investigate surfaces and materials too small even for powerful microscopes. The one at Sesame can be used to determine everything from the type of paint used in ancient art to pollutants in air samples. Because of that, Pellucci says, it attracts scientists from across disciplines. So you naturally have uh, people with different scientific backgrounds to talk to each other. Here you will have physicists interacting with chemists, medical doctors, engineers, and uh, uh, this is something which is very good of these places because you have new ideas by confronting several point of views. But what really makes Sesame unique is its members. Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Iran, Egypt, Pakistan, Jordan, Cyprus, and Turkey. In addition to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Israel and Iran have no diplomatic ties. Iran and Egypt have had frosty relations since Egypt offered the Shah of Iran asylum more than three decades ago. Turkey doesn't recognize Cyprus's control over the northern Turkish-speaking part of the island. But in the labs of Sesame, they put all that aside in theory at least. So these are all the optics. Behind a heavy metal door, Masoud Harfouf from Algeria is working with one of the beam lines produced by the synchrotron. In the small room, they are using the beam line to test soil from the Jordan River, not far from where Christians believe Jesus was baptized. A few shoebox-sized machines are connected with wires and cables. He turns on the beam line. Uh, that's the same sample here, where we are looking to some heavy metals, if we have contaminations like chromium, copper or something like this. As something harmful for the humans or for the animals. The idea for Sesame was born in a much more hopeful time for the Middle East. First floated by Mohammed Abu Salam, a Pakistani physicist in the early 1980s. It was only in the mid-1990s after Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat signed the Oslo Peace Accords and shook hands on the lawn of the White House that the idea really gained traction. I think that the now vilified Oslo Accords played a very important role in enabling such a thing to start. Eliezer Rabinovich was one of the first Israeli scientists involved in the project. He describes a meeting between Israeli and Arab scientists in a tent in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula in 1995. So we convened in a very special, I would almost say Hollywoodian uh, setup. It was a Bedouin tent, colored very strongly in red. 
And that was our first meeting, and that was the period when we were trying to do collaborations between Arabs and Israelis on a small scale. We later on moved to the larger scale, like Sesame. The 1993 Oslo Accords outlined a peace plan that called for a negotiated solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict within five years. The hope was that would pave the way for peace treaties between Israel and other Middle East states and a generally more peaceful region. But instead came the second Palestinian Intifada. Israel and the Palestinian territories saw some of the worst violence in decades. At the same time, the Sesame Project saw delay after delay. Then, in 2003, they finally broke ground on the site in El Salt. Jordan, which likely has the best relations with other regional states, offered the location and paid for the construction of Sesame. The building was completed in 2008, and construction started on the synchrotron. Last May, more than two decades after that meeting in the Sinai Desert, Sesame finally opened its doors. Now it's home to scientists, not just from member countries, but other regional states and international observers, many, like Pellucci, from Europe. When I told my colleagues that I was coming here, people looked at me and said that uh, that is never going to work. There was a lot of skepticism around the project, so people were honestly surprised to see that we were able to actually build the uh, accelerator, make it run. A few doors down, Egyptian and Jordanian scientists discuss a vacuum component of the accelerator. Among them is Adel Amru, a Jordanian scientist who was one of the first to join the project. We are happy to see scientists from all the members and sitting here, far away from politics. We deal with science and enough war. Do you think that science can help advance peace? Yes. This is what is happening actually now. We are sitting all together on one table talking about science. There was a discussion about some technical uh, issue and uh, the Israeli delegate uh, expressed uh, his point of view and then the Iranian delegate said, I fully agree with Israel. It was, you know, <laughs> you can say that's funny. <laughs> This year has seen a significant rise in regional tensions. Israel carried out airstrikes in Syria after shooting down what it says was an Iranian drone entering its airspace from Syria. The incident sparked fears of a new conflict between the countries. And at the same time, Turkish and Syrian forces came closer than ever to confrontation. Of course, we have echoes of what is happening in the region on the everyday life. However, when you put scientists together, they tend to talk about science. In fact, Pellucci says if regional tensions rise... That would make the center even more important. Pellucci says the biggest challenge isn't bringing scientists from warring states together or managing the Middle East political landscape. It's money. The member states all have an obligation to make contributions towards the center's annual operating budget of about $6 million. But in a region fraught by conflict, where few governments have prioritized science funding, that can be difficult.
Biggest challenge is to ensure continuous operation. Sesame is looking to get more scientists from other countries such as Syria, Lebanon and the Gulf states to use the center. The hope is that if those scientists use Sesame, it will help persuade their governments to become contributing members. And that will bring new money to the center, allowing the people here to keep practicing science and peace. For America Abroad, I'm Rebecca Collard in El Salt, Jordan. Coming up, Turkey has plans to reinvigorate its scientific past with a new observatory. But is that clashing with a political clampdown on science education? Science tells you how you originate. How? The question is how. But religion and philosophy would tell you why. Just tuning in? Catch the full episode and past programs by subscribing to America Abroad on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Islam and the Cosmos on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. In Turkey, science and religion appear to be on a collision course. While efforts are being made to nurture new discoveries, politics may be getting in the way of any real meaningful advancement. Hélène Franchineau has more from Istanbul. For the past decade, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been speaking of a grand vision for Turkey for the year 2023, which will mark the 100th anniversary of the modern Turkish Republic. On the agenda, a flurry of ambitious infrastructure projects and the goal to put the country in the world's top 10 economies. The Eastern Anatolia Observatory is one of these projects. It is currently being built on the hills around Erzurum in the east of the country. Completion date, 2020. With a diameter of 4 meters, it will be one of the largest telescopes in Asia. Professor Sinan Alish, an astronomer from Istanbul University says it will be a giant leap for Turkish astronomy, which has so far relied on telescopes that did not exceed one and a half meter in diameter. Normally astronomy, the classical astronomy, works in the optical wavelengths. This telescope will be also working in the near-infrared wavelengths. So this will be also totally new to Turkish astronomy. Modern Turkish ties with astronomy go back almost a century. During the 1930s, several German scientists escaped the growing Nazi threat to Turkey and helped develop astronomy in the then Young Republic. Istanbul University has the oldest astronomy department in the country, established in 1933 by Erwin finley a former associate of Albert Einstein. Inside the department, you can actually find one of the oldest observatories still in operation with an impressive Zeiss telescope brought over from Germany. The founder of modern Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, personally signed the purchase order 83 years ago. The machine is still in use today. We are trying to keep it uh, working uh, because also emotionally we are connected to this telescope. Similar telescopes in the world, they are maybe just in the museums or they are not in operation, they are just kept it like that. But to keep it operational, I think also keeping it alive somehow. So we like it. Turkey has the ambition to become the next rising Muslim power in the region, in all fields, including science. One could liken such a time to what is commonly called the Islamic Golden Age, from the 8th to the 13th century, when arts and science flourished. 
In the city's historical district, a few steps away from Topkapi Palace, a landmark from the Ottoman era, lies a tiny museum dedicated to this time of great contributions of the Arabic Islamic world, especially in astronomy, geography, and cartography. Detlef Quintern is a soft-spoken historian of sciences at the Fatih Sultan Mehmed Vakif University in Istanbul and leads the tour of the museum. And it was used by Arazi in the beginning of the 10th century. The museum houses replicas of compasses, clocks, maps, surgical instruments, all testimony of the momentum and creativity that existed in the scientific field in the Arabic Islamic world, at a time when Europe was going through the Middle Ages. The key artifact is located in the entrance, the Al-Mamun map, named after the caliph that reigned for 20 years in Baghdad at the beginning of the 9th century. We can only see a replica, but it shows a world with a triangular Africa, a world where oceans are open instead of surrounded by land as they were depicted until then, and the globe as a spherical projection. Quinton calls it a breakthrough. I mean, it shows also that this period of Arabic Islamic sciences was not only a conservation of Greek sources, but uh, an immense further development, that's very important. This map revolutionized the history of geography and cartography. Three years ago, the map was cited by the then science minister of Turkey, Fikri Ishik, who wrongly declared that the Al-Mamun map was the proof that Muslim scientists had first discovered that the Earth was round. Evidence showed the Greeks and others had proved that theory centuries earlier. In today's Turkey, the topic of the origin and use of certain scientific theories and discoveries is all the more timely. Last summer, the Ministry of Education announced a new school curriculum where Darwin was no longer taught. Turkish students will have to wait until university to discover the landmark theory of evolution. Turkish society is generally very open, but they are becoming more political now. This is Professor Yavuz Ekşi from Istanbul Technical University is the head of the Union of Turkish Astronomers and works on astrophysics and neutron stars. He doesn't see how teaching evolution conflicts with Islam. I don't get sad about coming from the same origin with the rest of the living organisms. And we should teach it as something normal, not something related to religion. The subjects are completely different. Science tells you how you originate, how. The question is how. But religion and philosophy would tell you why. It is too soon to know what the impact of this new curriculum might be for future Turkish scientists. One area that is left untouched by current political whims is astronomy. Modern Turkey's founder Atatürk was a noted supporter of scientific progress. The future is in the skies is a quote most Turks have learned in their childhood. This may help explain the Turkish government's investment in the new Eastern Anatolia Observatory. But there is a concern that money being spent on these projects doesn't trickle down to scientists themselves. Both astronomy professors Alish and Ekshi say there is a need for increased financial support to hire more astronomy professors and award more scholarships to attract the brightest students. Turkey is still in the minor leagues when it comes to astronomy. The best telescopes of the country are what Professor Yavuz Ekshi called mediocre. You could find a comparable instruments in some good high schools in the Western world. While the upcoming Fomiter telescope at the Eastern Anatolia Observatory will be a big step forward, 
it will still pale to what is already available elsewhere in the world. The United States has three 10-meter optical telescopes, and currently the world's largest telescope is being built in Chile. Diameter, 40 meters. Turkey's ambitions to catch up to the rest of the world faces other challenges as well. It still needs to join the European Southern Observatory, an intergovernmental research organization that provides access to top-level observation facilities. Under Erdogan's leadership, there has been a noted push for progress in all aspects of exploring space. Legal preparations are underway and this year, Lomeka will vote on creating a Turkish space agency. Turkey has the goal of producing and launching its own satellites within the next few years. For America Abroad, this is Hélène Franchino in Istanbul. Of course, Turkey isn't the only Muslim country investing in space science. Over the past century, Muslims have played critical roles in some of the most important breakthroughs in the field. For instance, part of the mapping of the moon for the Apollo 11 mission was done from an observatory in Egypt. Also, during that mission, Egyptian-born geologist Farouk Elbaz worked for NASA. He selected the lunar landing sites and prepared the astronauts for landing. Listen, uh, the Eagle has landed. Four years ago, the United Arab Emirates announced what may be the most ambitious space project from a Muslim nation. They want to send a probe to Mars. Our science mission is to produce the first ever truly global picture of the Martian atmosphere. This is the first holistic study of the Martian climate. It's scheduled to and launch in two years to coincide with the Dubai World Expo. And if all goes as planned, the spacecraft will reach Mars in 2021, which is also the 50th anniversary of the founding of the UAE. The mission is a big step forward for the United Arab Emirates, says Jörg Matthias Dieterman. He's the author of Space Science and the Arab World, Astronauts, Observatories and Nationalism in the Middle East. So here one can see already the importance of nationalism in this project. This is a project just like other space projects that seeks to demonstrate the power of a nation, the capability of a nation, and thereby also bringing prestige to that nation's state, to that nation's government, to that nation's ruler. However, the Emirates' Mars mission is not just about prestige alone. It is part of an effort that is also shared with other major oil-producing nations to reduce dependence on oil. So countries in the Middle East have been trying to establish knowledge-based economies rather than fossil fuel-based economies. So countries like the United Arab Emirates, but also Qatar and others are trying to follow Singapore or South Korea becoming producers of high-tech well, that's interesting because here in the United States, uh, space exploration is increasingly privatized. You have SpaceX run by Elon Musk and also Richard Branson interested in flying missions to Mars. Yeah, that's a very good point. And actually, the United Arab Emirates is also interested in private space venture. So Abu Dhabi has been an early investor in Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic space tourism enterprise. Hmm. And there have been plans to turn different emirates of the United Arab Emirates 
into potential future space ports or hubs of the spaceflight industry. So what are the biggest challenges, do you think, in the Arab world for expanding knowledge of space? Which countries are doing the best, do you think, to address those challenges? Where is it falling short? Arab world is a very diverse place at the moment. We have countries that are in deep, deep crisis, Syria, Libya, Yemen, for instance. At the same time, the Arab world has also very prosperous and stable countries, for instance, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates. Certainly a challenge that many Arab countries share is the challenge of having very, very young populations that need to be educated and find purpose and need to find jobs, or otherwise they might become frustrated and then feed unrest. So Space science can be an area that could inspire young people and that could provide purpose and opportunities for education and for work for many young Arabs. So this is both a challenge and an opportunity. The other challenge is posed by the amount of international collaboration that the Arab countries want to engage in. International collaboration is absolutely necessary for the kind of big, advanced global science that is Mars exploration, for instance. Hardly any country can do that by itself. At the same time, the danger is if one relies too much on foreign partners, foreign expertise and technology, then the potential risk is that local capacities would not be built up. I think countries in the Arab world that want to engage in advanced astronomy and space science, they have to build these international collaborations. However, at the same time, they also have to make sure that young talent in their own countries is being developed. Jörg Matthias Dieterman is the author of Space Science and the Arab World. So we've talked about Muslim astronomy, planned missions, and the development of scientific instruments and theories. But what about actual space exploration? There have been 10 Muslims from various countries who have gone into space since 1985. And perhaps the most interesting mission by a Muslim began in 2007. That's when Dr. Sheikh Muzaffar Shakur, an orthopedic surgeon from Kuala Lumpur, made history. He blasted off from Kazakhstan on a Russian Soyuz spacecraft and became the first Malaysian to fly into space. He also became the first devout Muslim to go into space during the holy month of Ramadan, and that presented a challenge. He was very concerned about this because he was going to be on the International Space Station for some time, and he wanted to know how he could initiate Ramadan while he was in orbit. Kathleen Lewis is a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Ramadan is very peculiar for space travel because its date is timed with the first sighting of a new moon. Celestial bodies play a big role in the Quran, says Imam Yahya Hendi, Muslim chaplain at Georgetown University. There are hundreds of verses in the Quran that make references to the creation of the sun, the moon, the earth. It makes so many references to the galaxies in which these stars belong. It makes references to the orbits, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and how they operate. 
Islam uses a lunar calendar, and Ramadan is the ninth lunar month. For many Muslims, the holy month begins only when a local mullah spots a new moon. Now, if you're in space, you're going to be seeing the moon all the time, so you don't have that first sighting. Neither do you have the mullah who is the one who's conducting the observation or being advised on the observations to tell you precisely when that happens. So predicting the date and the timing of Ramadan, which will vary by a day or so throughout the world, is not as simple a thing in space as it is on Earth. And it wasn't just following Ramadan. How do you know how to face Mecca? How can you lie prostrate for prayer in zero gravity? Speaking to the Southern California Islamic Shura Council, Dr. Shakur talked about another dilemma, how to fulfill the commandment of praying five times a day. No one knows how to pray in space. Every 45 minutes, the sun goes up. Every 45 minutes, the sun goes down. So by that, you have to pray 80 times a day. This presented a real conundrum for religious scholars. So Malaysia, for the first time as an Islamic country, we had meetings with all the ulama-ulama all over the world, with Iran, with US, in Saudi, to find out guidelines on how to pray in space. So we came up with a guideline. We still pray five times a day according to our launching site. As for fasting, Dr. Shakur was given the option of delaying that until he returned to Earth. People look at the rules and think that they're hard and fast, and they've never really been hard and fast. They are allowed to be flexible, of course, with consultation with religious leaders. Imam Yahya Hendi agrees. We do not worship the moon. We do not worship the month of Ramadan. The lunar calendar is meant to help us do things in an organized fashion. Hendy believes Islam provides room for both modern science and ancient religious laws to coexist. There has been this debate within the Muslim community for a few hundred years. Do we start the month of Ramadan by scientific calculations, or do we have to actually see the moon? I am with the school of thought that says we need to accommodate each other's interpretations, but I am with those scholars who believe that science is the making of God, astronomy is the making of God, and if science tells us that we can tell the birth of the moon from a computer, that's what we should do. The most important thing is that we keep the connection uh, with God. The most important thing is that we keep this connection with our environment, with our surroundings. That's the whole idea. Muslim astronomers back in the Golden Age of Islam began studying the skies to improve their religious practice, when to pray, how to face Mecca. And then they solved more scientific questions, and European thinkers were drawn to learn from them. Well, now, in a new era of space exploration, how will Muslim scholars work with the rest of the world to advance scientific thought while remaining faithful to their ancient traditions? This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, pri.org where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. 
I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by the Henry Luce Foundation, Public Radio International stations, and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.